a little bitty tear is about to let me down. Yes, it is my birthday. Okay, um, after that, uh, very moving and touching. Um, <laughs> why don't you take your Bibles and open them with me to Romans chapter 7, and let's resume our, our look at Romans chapter 7. You know, I, um, I'm going to try to overcome one of the obstacles in a week, uh, once-a-week Bible study, and that is uh, in a couple of ways. First of all, I'm going to try to slow down. And um, secondly, <clears throat> I, I mean, I'm in no hurry. Uh, anybody want to? Qu- what did, did somebody say something really tacky? <laughs> somebody get her name. <laughs> You'll never be on the elder in this church. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm going to try, you know, the first at least four or five minutes of each uh, of each week to try and um, tie into where we stopped or where we were last week so that there will be some kind of overlap in what we did last week as we move forward to this week. So that's what we're going to try to do. Um, we are studying, the, the, uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, and there are a couple of you, um, Romans chapter 7 is the most controversial book, in a controversial chapter, in the entire New Testament. There is more written about it, more discussion, more debate, more disagreement um, about what Paul is, is doing here, in, at least in terms of who he's describing. The overall impact of the book might uh, come out as the same, but... There's just a lot of ink spilled over Romans chapter 7. We have covered uh, the first six verses. We did that in the fall. And so tonight we're going to try to take a look at verses 7 and 8. And um, we, won't, we won't make it all the way through 8, but um, I'm going to read 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, that's what we'll take a look at um, Let's, let's do this. Let me remind you that the key to understanding Romans chapter 7 is really found in verse 5. I want you to go back to Romans 5 with me. I want to look at two verses there. And I'm going to try to give you somewhat of a panoramic view, try to organize the text for you. And, and it, I think it will help you understand chapter 7. If you'll, if you'll understand that all this started, all this um, hullabaloo started really over a statement that Paul made in Romans chapter 5. I said this last week, but we'll look at it again. The, um, the statement of grace that Paul makes in Romans 5, 20, and 21 is so hard to believe, in essence, that Paul has to take two chapters to devote to potential misunderstandings of it. All right, let me, let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at the statement in 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The 
the impact of those two verses are so monumental. Paul is, recognizes that there is going to be objection to what he has said, or at least the creation of questions in the minds of his hearers. So what he does is he, he precludes argument. Um, for instance, he knows that one of the questions that is going to arise in the minds of his hearers is the one that is mentioned in 6.1. Okay, Paul, I hear what you're saying in 5.20 and 21. Okay, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's, that's a misunderstanding. That's a misappropriation. That is an, uh, uh, an objection that he's trying to preclude uh, in response to what he said in 5.20.21. Are you with that? So he spends the entirety of chapter 6 addressing that question. Shall we sin that grace may abound? That's what chapter 6 is. It's an overturning of such an awful suggestion. The suggestion is, okay, well, Paul, if we're saved by grace, then how about we just send it to the max so that we can really see grace uh, abundantly? Oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. He devotes chapter 6 to that misunderstanding. That, of course, is um, a chapter that is aimed at the position known as antinomianism. Okay. Now, go back to chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. There is another question that he um, realizes that is, going to, um, that is going to arise. And it has to do um, with what, whatever, what place does the law then have? If one is saved not by obedience to some kind of uh, code and one is saved by grace, then, then what place, if any, does the law have at all? That's the second question. And chapter 7 is addressed at that question. Now, I've said this before, but let me show you something. Both 6 and 7 are parenthetical. He returns to the great position that he's trying to describe in chapter 8. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, now yes. Chapter 5, parenthesis, 6 and 7, resumed, chapter 8. 6 and 7 are addressing questions that he knows what he has said will create. I teach something, says Paul. But I know people are going to have questions, so I better address the questions. So he addresses one of the questions in chapter 6. He addresses the other question in chapter 7. Chapter 6 and 7 are both parenthetical to the overall argument. But the question that is addressed in chapter 7, of course, has to do with the role of the law. That's what he does in chapter 7, is give you the role, the function, the place, the operation, the legitimate operation of the law. He has already taught you in uh, the first uh, four or five chapters, six chapters, that five chapters, that law will not justify you. Now he's going to teach you that law will not sanctify you, which is a common mistake that Christians make. The section that we're looking at is really a section from 7 to 12. And his purpose in this section is to vindicate the law, that is, the character of the law, the law is in no way to be blamed for our failure to keep it. That's what he's going to do. 
He's going to vindicate that someone would ever think that the reason that I don't keep it is because of the law. He is going to try and vindicate the, the character of the law. In verses 1 through 6, uh, look at verse 6, really, 7-6. Uh, but now we have been delivered from the law. That is, verses 1 through 6 have stated that the Christian is in an entirely new relationship to the law. In verses 7 through 12 and in 14 through 25, um, they are nothing but a working out of that contention. That is, the Christian is in an entirely new relationship to the law. 7 through 12 and 14 through 25 are nothing more than working that out. He is, of course, he is a, he is a logician. He is a, he is a genius. And what he's doing is, uh, he has stated in 1 through 6 that our, our relationship to the law is, is brand new. And then he's going to explain all that, at least more fully, in the rest of the chapter in two different sections. Verse 13, by the way, is kind of a transitional verse. But notice, again, I hope you understand the whole purpose of this chapter. Now look, we, we dive in headlong in verse 7. What shall we say then? Now, have you heard that before? Yes, you have. You heard it in 6.1. <laughs> what shall we say then? Do you see what he's doing? He is answering the objections that are in the minds of his hearers. He does it once in chapter 6. He's doing it again in chapter 7. What shall we say then? I know what you're thinking, says Paul to his audience. I know what you're thinking. Is the law sin? Paul is trying to anticipate a misunderstanding that he knows that he himself created. He created it by the statement that he made in 520 and in texts like these. Last week, um, uh, Jay Parker came up to me and he says, Now, wait a minute, Jimmy. I think you should have included 614. And he was absolutely right. But I was saving it for tonight. Um, but you'll notice in 614, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, so the Jewish audience to which Paul writes is thinking, Wait a minute. Is he completely setting aside the law? That is... A statement like he makes in 7.6, 6.14, and 5.20. All of those statements seem to be putting the law in a very bad light. Leading some to conclude that the law is sin. Is the law all bad? I mean, we did see last week even, I reminded you, that the law arouses sin in us. Okay, if something arouses sin in us, is it not then sin itself? So that's what he's addressing. People who are saying, all right, Paul, you have made these sweeping statements about grace and the, um, the fact that law won't save us. Then tell us, Paul, is the law sin? Does it have no role at all? And that's what you see introduced in verse 7. And he answers in a very formulaic way. He, uh, he, this, is, this is when Paul wants to denounce something, when he wants to recoil in horror, he always uses this formula. He says, well, actually, it's, it, your translation is going to be different. This translation says, certainly not. Uh, most of your translations will say, may it never be. 
which is really closer to the Greek because there's a, there's a form of the Greek, uh, the Greek verb to be in there. But meganoikoi, God forbid, is the law sin or is the law sinful? Oh, no. No, no. May it never be. And then he goes on to say, may it never be on the contrary. Not only am I not teaching that the law is sin. Did you get that? I am not teaching that. Not only am I not teaching that. I'm teaching the contrary of what you're saying. You're suggesting that I taught that the law is sin? No, no. I'm teaching the opposite. That's what you have in this section. And then in verse 7, he goes on to say, that is, not only am I not teaching that, but I'm teaching that um, the exact opposite of what you say. I know that the law indeed is impotent to deliver us from sin. Yes, that's true. But it isn't valueless. Now look at verse 7 with me. I, I hope that sets you up to understand what, you, what he says in verse 7. Um, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, on the contrary. And now he's going to say, um, not only is it not sinful, but here is the role that it plays. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, so what he's done in that two-thirds of verse 7, is that he has told you some positive roles, some beneficial roles uh, that the law plays. The first one is, I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. Now, guys, um, Paul is suggesting that without the law's operation, he would have never been aware of the real nature and extent of sin in him until the law brought it or made it clear to him. Let me read you a statement that is made um, by Paul. and You don't need to turn here. Just listen to this. He says, um, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, he's already taught that. But here he repeats that, that whole concept. It is through the law that I came to know the existence of sin. Now, folks, let me um, um, slow down and say a couple of things. First of all, guys, what Paul is suggesting is not, not, not just that the law didn't simply make him aware that sin exists. The law made him aware that sin exists in him. The function of the law is not simply to say, well, you know, there's sin out there, but know that that sin is in me. I would not have known, says Paul, sin, except through the role and functioning of the law. Now, folks, the law is the only way that sin is ever known. That is, that we are ever made aware that sin exists in us only comes as a result of the functioning, the legitimate functioning of the law. It was the means of convincing him that he was a sinner is what the law did. 
And so he would look at the law and say, my goodness, if you did that, thank you, law. I know you fellows are saying that it's sinful. I'm saying, no, no, it plays a very wonderful role. And the role that it plays in is that it made me aware that I was a sinner. That's what it does. And that's a good thing. It is an everlastingly redemptive thing that the law has done to make us aware that not only that sin exists, but that sin exists in me. That's what the law did. Now, guys, I can tell you this. Um, if sin is only known by the law, then um, <laughs> that's the principle I'm, I'm, I'm espousing. That sin is only known by the law. Then tell me this. Um, what would you say about 21st century current American preaching? If, if, if a person becomes aware of sin only through the law, then tell me. What do we have on our hands nationwide and worldwide? What, how would you then evaluate uh, all the preaching that, uh, that you hear about or maybe see on television? Uh, you know, um, that is trying to communicate to people uh, just how, 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 um, how their self-esteem has been wounded and how positively they need to think about this, that, or the other. Guys, Paul is saying... I am so thankful that the law was used to bring me to an awareness of my sin. Thus, the law is, is, a, is an instrument of great good. Now, notice, Paul does not say, I would not have been a sinner without the law. He's only saying, I would not have known that I was a sinner without the law. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is the only way any man comes to know that he is a sinner is through confrontation with the holy law of God. You remove that from the pulpit, and I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, what you're seeing today is not genuinely converting because no man embraces, no man desires, no man longs for a Savior until he first knows that the problem is sin. And how does that happen? Through the law. I've told you this before, but, um, you know, I, from time to time, I am privileged to, to have you bring your children into my office um, very frankly, I can't imagine why anybody would want to do that. I scare your children absolutely pea green. And, um, you know, they're just these wonderfully precious little bouncy-wouncy things. And uh, they enter through my door of my office, and they clam up. And, uh, you know, they sit in the chair, and one of the parents sits in the other chair. And, and you know, there's this, okay, darling, go ahead and tell good old Dr. Young, you know, what's been going on in your, in your soul. And they... <laughs> I'm not breathing a word in front of him. You know, and so they, they, you know, the parents are embarrassed. Oh, honey, you know, when we were last night at, you know, at bedtime, remember, you know, um, and there's nothing, nothing. I mean, you can't get them to say hi. 
<laughs> you can't get, I mean, they're just frozen up in the main. But uh, my point is this. When, when you bring your children to me, and, and I say this to you as parents, and, and also I, I think as a parent, if you're trying to figure out when your children should take communion, this is the thing that you need to look for, I think. Um, when they're in my office trying to bear some witness to their, their soul's uh, conversion, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for them to say anything about their knowledge and awareness of sin. And I think if you're trying to figure out whether your child understands the gospel, and I know that's so important to so many of you, you're trying to figure out, should I let them take communion or not take communion? Well, do they understand that primarily, first and foremost, Jesus is not a friend that sticks closer than a brother? He is that, and I don't want to deprecate or depreciate that. That's a, he, is not, um, he is not primarily a, um, a wonderful counselor. He is that, and I... And I I, I'm delighted that he is, and we, we need to celebrate that he is. But first and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is a Savior from sin. Our problem is not our need for counsel. Our problem is not our need for relationship. Our problem is not our need for the elimination of loneliness. Our problem is we must deal with our sin. And that's why Jesus is so... He is a Savior. Now, who is it that longs for him to be that to them? It is those who have been brought to an awareness that I have sin in me. And how does that happen? According to Paul? (laughs) By the law. By standing and gazing at the law. That's one of the functions of the law, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, we can't dismiss the law. It doesn't justify it. doesn't sanctify it. But I'll tell you one thing it does. It makes you aware that not only sin exists, but it exists in you. Thank you, law. <laughs> I thank you for doing that. Because that's what made me aware that I needed a Savior. And I, um, I embrace him. Oh, my goodness. Um, there's a second thing in verse uh, 7 that he says. Uh, I would not have known sin except through the law. And then he goes on, period, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, guys, first of all, let me, let me just do a little house cleaning here. Many of your translations have different words for the word covetousness. Um, the Greek word is epithumia. It's a word that um, it really means passion, whether good or bad. It can be used goodly, and it can be used badly. It depends on, normally the context will tell you, but the word itself is not derogatory. It just means strong passion. But Paul is saying that through the operation of the law, um, he came into uh, realization that there was a strong passion within him, a strong desire for sin in his life. You can call it what you... But, but, the, but the particular commandment that is mentioned is the Tenth Commandment. Now, why do you... Now, I'm not sure whether Paul was saying that was the one that brought me to faith. I'm not saying... I'm not sure that he said that or it should be principial for all of us. But it's interesting that he points to the Tenth One. 
why do you think somebody like Paul would um, would um, want to? Why the tenth one would be so useful in the life of Paul? You know what the tenth one is? Thou shalt not covet. Now, guys, you know Paul's background. Paul is, of course, a Jew. Um, he uh, came from uh, rabbinic training. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, in, in fact, in, interestingly enough, you remember in that the self-description of him in Philippians 3 where he talks about himself being blameless? <laughs> Think of that, ladies and gentlemen. There was a time that he thought of himself as utterly blameless. And then he saw the law. What part of it? It was the tenth one. The tenth one got him. Why, why would the tenth be so useful to somebody like a Paul? Let me suggest a reason. And, and I, think it's, I think this is more than an educated guess, although I do a lot of educated guessing. I will do a lot of guessing. <laughs> um, but um, why the tenth one is so important? Well, guys, he's a, here's a Pharisee. And here's a guy that has concluded, all a Pharisee has included, that as long as there is obedience on my part, I'm in good shape. And for the Pharisee, obedience meant some kind of external conformity to a, to a standard. You remember when Jesus hits the scene? Um, his first sermon in Matthew chapter 5, he says, um, You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, he that looketh upon a woman to lust after, he hath committed adultery in his heart. What has he done there? By the way, when he says, you have heard it said, who's he referring to? He's referring to rabbinic tradition. And rabbinic tradition was, as long as you stay out of some uh, uh, physical uh, relationship with somebody that's not your wife, you are innocent. And so Paul could stand in front of the law and he could say, well, you know, uh, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, uh, okay, uh, I can check that one off. I've never bowed before any kind of something over in uh, Bangladesh. And then he goes down, well, I've, uh, you know, I've always uh, uh, kept the Sabbath. Heck, heck, yeah, I'm always in the temple on the Sabbath. And I've always been good to my mother and daddy. And I never stole a thing. And I don't lie. And I don't cheat. None of that business. I never had an affair. And, you know, he's just going really good. Here's number one, good. Number two, number seven, number eight, number nine. And then he gets to ten. And ten says, thou shalt not covet. And Paul said, wait, 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 just a minute. Now, I know that if I commit adultery, I know how that's done. <laughs> I know how theft is performed. But how does one covet? There's nothing external about coveting. It's all internal. And the thing that stopped a Pharisee in his tracks is the recognition that the law was not describing something external. That it was describing something on his insides. And that is what jarred him into a realization that he needed a Savior. That I have for all of my rabbinic years falsely taught the law. I have taught that as long as I externally am in conformity to its provisions, that I am clean. And Jesus comes along and says, Ah, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, 
And you have heard it said that thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, he who is angry with his brother has committed murder already. The standard was not something external. The standard was something internal. That the law is something that, that, that uh, described not my external obedience, but my inner condition. You know, guys, think about coveting for a second. What is it? What is coveting? Coveting is, is um, saying to God that everything that you provided for me is not enough. I, am, I, I covet which leads me to a discontentment in view of all that you've given me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I was talking about Sunday. Let me, let me clear that up. You remember, you probably don't remember this, but there is one sin that is mentioned by Paul in the New Testament that is equated with idolatry that I mentioned Sunday morning. There's several, but the one that's in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5, remember what it was? And he, there's, he mentions an idolatrous man, and no, I mean an adulterous man and this man. And then he says, and the covetous man, which is idolatry. Why is covetousness idolatry? Because covetousness says, I don't have enough. You didn't give me enough. And I want more. I want whatever it is that I want, I want more of it. I want more beauty. I want more brains, I want more money, but I want more of it. And I am upset with you for giving me not enough. And so, I know that you say all made all these statements about how, how adequate you are for me, but I'm saying to you, you ain't enough. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the sin of idolatry. Now, the, 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 gang, um... I, I mentioned this this quickly, and we'll wrap this up. But that in the in the in the seventh verse, you notice that he says, um, "I would have not known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness." You see, there are two English words translated "known." You see the same English word "known." Known. There are two different Greek words. Um, the first known is "gnosko." The the second known is "oida." There is a there is a knowing. And then there's a knowing. There's, there's something um, that is the result of a, of a deep reflection and experience. And Paul found sin in him to an extent that he had never discovered before. Ladies and gentlemen, omit the preaching of the law and people will run crazy. Because they can run crazy thinking, I'm doing fine. You know, um, I, um, I have tried. I haven't done real well. But out of the last ten nights, I have probably six times. I've, I've tried to do it 30 straight nights, but that shows you I'm 60% of the time. It's not there. Uh, I have tried to read the... Um, Last four chapters of the book of Job. <laughs> Do you know what's in the last four chapters of the book of Job? You know what's in the last four chapters. That's where he says, you know, God does, you know, they've had all this dialogue between Job and all his friends, and then God steps forward and says, all right, sonny boy, step up. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to have a word with you. He says, um, hey, um, 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I said to this sea, that's as far as you can go, and I put doors on the thing? Huh? Where were you? Where were you when I taught the deer how to calve? Where were you when I taught the eagle how to fly? Huh? Where were you? If you know, tell me. I, I, I say that to say this. Um, you remember last week, um, the little Hungarian that was with us, dear little man. I'm telling, he's not a little man. He's 39, and he's a sweet man. And Susie and I really think the world of him. And and um, <laughs> bless his heart, um, he just thought this place was incredible. I think it's incredible too. But but he, I mean, Susie took him on the second hour and showed him all that Cindy Cole does in the Amazing Grace Land, and and um, went into Jimmy Umlaw's Sunday school class, and and went to some other Sunday school classes, and and I mean, he was just. And then they came to our grace group Sunday night, and, and they were just taken aback by it all, you know. And I just want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, compared to Andras Kazar, <laughs> I know a lot. But when I sit and read the last four chapters of Job, I discover how little. What is it, ladies and gentlemen, that caused Paul to discover sin in him like he had never known before? You eliminate the preaching of the law, ladies and gentlemen, and all of us will think, we know a lot. I mean, (laughs) we're doing quite good. When in fact, ladies and gentlemen, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Where were you when God said to the, to the oceans, thus far thou shalt go and no further? Where were you? Where was I? Where were we? Well, guys, my point is, you, we cannot afford to eliminate facing the law because it has a good impact on us. It does good things. Let me, let me close this up. Let me try to make uh, three or four applications. First of all, guys, are you clear that to lust after an evil thing, that is sin. Um, to, to desire what is forbidden is sinful. Guys, the very thought of sin is sin. The issue is not how I do performing on the outside. The very contemplation that is sin do you understand that do you see that in the text secondly um, let me before I go to secondly surely obviously there are different consequences of sin for instance I would much rather you be angry at me than murder me which I'm sure some of you have considered But, you know, there are different consequences. But the consideration of the sin is sin. Um, Secondly, the main purpose of the law is to show us the character of sin that exists within us. How does it do that? Well, first, very simply, it defines sin for us. Um, Secondly, it it shows 
how sin not simply exists, but exists in us. And then thirdly, the law doesn't cause sin, but the law discovers sin. Um, it, It strips away the guise of sin when we thought it was good when it isn't. And it brings to light that which was there all along. But we didn't know it. And the law brings it to light. Gang, I can say this, and and I know this is uh, not the easiest stuff to listen to, but the biblical doctrine of sin is severe indeed. It is far more sweeping than we ever like to admit. Um, um, I understand that. I would like to think of myself uh, in, in better terms than the Bible describes me. It is the law that allows me to face reality about what abides in my heart. So, is the law sin? Oh my goodness, no. It does some wonderful things. It makes us know of the existence of sin in us and the extensiveness of sin in us. And that's something worth celebrating, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, law. Thank you for revealing my own heart to me. Our Father, I do pray that uh, your word will be um, our very life. That we would form our opinions and our positions uh, as they grow out of this book. Indeed, Father, um, some would have us to believe that we're a whole lot better off than we are. We want to believe that. I I would love to believe that I'm really a very knowledgeable man. And then we face the very incarnate knowledge and discover how little we know. I would like to think of myself as a very fine, upstanding man. And then we face the law, understanding that it's It describes the inner man, not the outer. And once I get that, then I discover that though I may have never murdered anyone, I'm a murderer. And though I may have never committed adultery, I'm an adulterer. That's what the law does for us, O God. And then knowing that, We are driven to the Savior who in our eyes is altogether lovely and to the doctrine of the justification by faith that tells us that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that what Christ has accomplished is perfectly suited for the needs of a sinner such as I. We um, thank you for the provisions of the gospel of grace 
We thank you for the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, which is our only hope of ever being made right in the sight of a God who is infinitely holy. We love you, Lord. We are sorry we love you so little. And we ask for grace to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.